Welcome back to another episode of the Roots to STEM podcast, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the paths they've taken to get where they are today and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Steph Katie. Today is a very special episode because it is our one year anniversary of the podcast. I really want to say thank you to all of you who are listening. I appreciate it so much that you're here and I'm hoping to keep making this podcast better and better as we go. In honor of this one-year anniversary, I've made the podcast slightly more official on social media. So follow us on Twitter at Roots to STEM Pod and at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Roots to STEM Pod. Okay, so without further ado, I am super, super excited about today's guest. Today we'll be hearing from Dr. Shane Campbell-Staten, an assistant professor in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department at Princeton University. This is a special episode for me because Shane was actually my teaching fellow for a herpetology class, which is a study of reptiles and amphibians for any folks that might not be aware. And it's so cool for me to see where his career and his research has gone since then. As a part of this course that Shane taught, we went to Costa Rica for spring break since the tropics are a huge hotspot for reptile and amphibian diversity. And we took this riverboat tour one day and Shane jumped out of the boat to try to catch us a caiman, which is a relative of crocodiles and alligators. Sadly, he didn't catch one, but I remember being just so shocked and impressed that he was so invested in us having this really great experience and seeing a caiman that he was just going to jump into this murky water with God only knows what else in it to try to get one for us. And then a few months ago, Shane gave a talk to my department and I was blown away by the really cool research that he was doing. Then I looked more into what he's working on and in addition to his really cool research, he also does a bunch of amazing science communication stuff, including a podcast called The Biology of Superheroes, which is so fun and entertaining and just wonderful and you should definitely check it out. And so I was like, okay, I need to have him on podcast. And luckily he was on board. This was such a fun and amazing conversation to have and I just really, really enjoyed it and I hope that you will too. Hi Shane, thanks for uh, being here. This is awesome. Thank you for having me. This is- Reunited after seven years. Yeah, so good. <laughs> okay, so the first question I ask people is basically just, can you tell me who you are, where you're from, um, a little bit about the research that you do? Yeah. Yeah, uh, who I am, where I'm from. Uh, so my name is uh, Shane campbell Staten. I am an evolutionary biologist. Um, as of this very moment, uh, I'm an assistant professor at UCLA. Uh, as of this time next week, I will be an assistant professor at Princeton University. Um, and uh, I was raised in South Carolina. Um, you know, in the deep south, uh, raised in a small town called Sumter, um, finished out high school and did my undergrad in upstate New York and Rochester, New York. Um, yeah. And then just been bumping around wherever science takes me after that, basically. Um, (laughs) my, my research, uh, I'm an evolutionary biologist. Most of my research revolves around, uh, contemporary evolution. So trying to understand basically the lasting biological impacts of, our human footprint. Cool. Um, okay. So I like to ask people about sort of how they first got interested in science. Um, but I'm going to ask it a little bit differently for you because I know that you are a fan of superheroes. So I'm going to ask you like this, what is your origin story? So like, <laughs> you know, if Marvel or DC is making a movie about Shane Campbell Staten, yeah. what is the origin story? 
if they are making an origin story about Shane Campbell Staten, it will be the most anticlimactic <laughs> action adventure anyone has ever been into. Um, yeah, I think that will be as bad as like Ben Affleck as Daredevil. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, for me, like my my journey into science um, was actually interestingly through television. Um, yeah, so I feel like when you ask most biologists this question, they have like, you know, some cute story about them being a kid and splashing around in a tide pool or something like that. I, I was raised in the hood in South Carolina, so I didn't have tide pools um, or access to much nature, so to speak. Um, you know, my mom, you know, single mom, you know, she worked uh, more than full time, uh, pulling like 48, sometimes 72 hour shifts, driving, driving a taxi cab in, in South Carolina. So I was like a, a latchkey kid. Um, you know, I didn't have, you know, access to a lot of, you know, extracurricular activities generally. So, um, for me, like television was like my escape from the world. Um, and you know, so like nature documentaries, um, you know, science adventure shit like Jeff Corwin and Steve Irwin and, you know, and, and those guys, um, you know, those are basically the people that introduced me to like the natural world. Um, and I got kind of obsessed with it as a kid and somehow that obsession, um, turned into evolutionary biology. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, when I was an undergrad, um, you know, I decided to, to do, that I wanted to be a biology major, like sort of coming into undergrad. Uh, unfortunately, I had almost no training in any type of science whatsoever. Um, like during my, like going into my freshman year and I got completely steamrolled, like completely steamrolled. I, I finished my first year, I think with a 0 0.65 GPA. It was, uh, huh. and, and I worked really hard for all 0.65 of that GPA. Um, I just, I, one, I had no idea how to study. I had no background in science. I had, I just had, I just was not prepared for, I wasn't ready for that smoke as they say. Uh, so yeah, but you know, I just kind of kept, kept at it. I was like really hard headed and kind of, you know, I didn't know what else, you know, I would really want to do with my life except, you know, work with animals in some form or fashion and biology seemed to be the means to do that. So, yeah, I just kind of kept plugging away and I took five years to graduate. And by the time I got out of there, you know, I was, I was moving. Yeah. Did you know right after undergrad that you wanted to get a PhD? I had a pretty good idea. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure whether it was like unclear to me whether it was the right it was the right move because there was just so many unknowns, you know, like I had spent my last two years working in a lab uh, as an undergrad. So I felt like I had a pretty good feel for, you know, what that environment would be like, but you never know what happens behind the curtain, so to speak. <laughs> um, so I took a year off after, um, after my last year and I actually worked full time in the lab. I did my honors thesis in. Okay. And I figured, you know, if I could spend a year, in a lab, like nine to five at the very bottom of the totem pole, like doing everybody's busy work. Mm -hmm. And if I still wanted to like do science after that, then that was a pretty good sign that, you know, I could put in over half a decade, you know, trying to get a PhD. Um, yeah. And I was still in love with it. So 
Yeah. What was the work that you were doing? Like, what was the research in your undergrad lab? Um, so, uh, I did my, in my senior project, like my, um, like my senior thesis as an undergrad was, uh, looking at the, the origins of the captive, uh, bearded dragon population, you know, sort of where they came Mm. from in Australia. Uh, so using, uh, shed skins from, uh, from like captive, um, bearded dragons in the States and then reference sequences from, uh, from different, uh, species of bearded dragon across Australia to try to understand, you know, where those captive samples sat. So a lot of like phylogeography, I guess. Cool. Have you always been interested in lizards? Because I know then in your PhD, a lot of your work was also with lizards. (laughs) Yeah, I was, man, I, as a kid, I was completely obsessed with reptiles. I have no idea why. Um, I'm sure it, like my mother was like terrified to like come into the house many a day because she never knew like what the hell I had brought in uh, or where it was going to be. Um, but, you know, she supported me, bless her heart. And, um, yeah, but I was completely obsessed with reptiles. And, you know, I knew, you know, going into my uh, Going into undergrad and then going into my PhD, you know, I knew I wanted to study reptiles and I wanted to do something with DNA. Like I wanted to read the story of an individual, of a species, of a population in its DNA. Just like that idea fascinated me. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's what that's what got me started. Okay, so then can you tell us a little bit about your PhD? So you did your PhD at Harvard with Jonathan Losos and Scott Edwards. Can you tell us about some of the work that you did? Yeah. So, um, you know, so I worked, um, my PhD focused on trying to understand local adaptation of a widespread species um, in the southeastern U.S., the green anole. Um, So actually the green anole was probably the very first animal I ever interacted with as a kid growing Mm. up in North Carolina. Um, And it's funny because I guess it kind of came back around, um, you know, because I spent you know, six years working on it as a PhD student. Um, and, you know, it was really interesting because, you know, the ancestors of the green anole uh, come from Cuba, you know, which is a pretty warm, thermally stable, like subtropical environment. Um, and, but on the mainland, uh, it occurs as far north as like Tennessee, North Carolina, Oklahoma, where it gets really cold in the winters, right? So it's a much more temperate environment. And uh, so what I was studying was essentially local adaptation, how this ancestrally tropical species um, evolved to be able to deal with the extreme winters um, at, the, at the northern edge of its range. So, you know, I spent pretty much every summer for like five years driving around the entirety of the South. Um, I would take a car from, uh, from Boston uh, to Virginia, and then I would go... I would start in Mississippi and basically make a ring around the South, start from Mississippi, go to the coast of North Carolina, Mm -hmm. all the way down through the peninsula of Florida, up across the Gulf Coast, past uh, New Orleans, uh, down into the very southern tip of Texas and Brownsville, Texas, and then cut a straight line up through Austin, Texas, all the way to Oklahoma, and then back to Boston. Wow, that's a lot of driving. (laughs) It was a lot of driving. And I actually, I got my driver's license 24 hours before I left for my first trip. No way. (laughs) 
24 hours before I left on my first trip, I got my driver's license. And the first, uh, the first night in my entire life that I ever slept outside was the first night of my first field season. Wow. You're brave. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have someone with you or was this a solo trip? No, I, um, I actually brought a buddy of mine from, un, uh, from my undergrad. Okay. Um, along and like helped me, um, you know, help me catch lizards and, you know, and stuff like that. So yeah, I had some company. Um, I think, you know, and I took, I had a team, you know, at least one other person with me, I think every season, except the last leg of my very last collecting season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what does field work look like for you or what did it look like then? Cause I know the stuff that you do now is a little bit different, but what, what was the day in the life of doing field work aside from like driving yeah. a million hours? <laughs> yeah. So definitely a lot of driving. Um, basically it was a very, very fast paced summer, uh, every summer of my PhD, because I think we had like between 15 and 20 sites to hit, you know, across all of the Southeastern U S. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't think we were ever at one place more than like 72 hours. And, you know, so every like two or three days I was driving half a day and then we would set yeah. up the next for, you know, for two or three days. Um, and basically, you know, the days were all, all out in the field. Uh, so basically, you know, so you have to remember like, this is the South, like in the middle of the summer. Right. So as soon as the sun comes up, like, you have to be out of a tent. Otherwise you are going to begin to slow bake um, <laughs> like at dawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So typically, you know, get up right before dawn, you know, have breakfast prepared, um, eat breakfast, you know, get everything in order for the day, like make sure, you know, everybody's got water and equipment and so on and so forth. And uh, then we'd head out from like the early morning until like 1130, like right near the heat of the day. Um, just like walking around looking for lizards, um, take a break, um, like collect whatever lizards, you know, you see, take a break, um, have lunch, you know, for about half an hour. Then you try to find some way to like fight off the heat of the day. Um, you know, maybe like go and see a movie or walk around Walmart because you're always 20 feet from a Walmart once you cross the Mason Dixon line. Um, and then after the heat of the day, um, you know, we're back out until like right before sundown, uh, looking for lizards, then have dinner, you know, um, organize all the data, um, you know, check on the lizards and all this stuff. And then, um, you know, after dinner, go out for a night herp uh, and we'd typically be out until, I don't know, maybe three o'clock in the morning or so, just like walking around looking for sleeping lizards. Mm. And, you know, so we'll have, you know, at each site, we typically have a day or two of, of that, just like collecting animals. And then a day where we're testing animals, like looking at, uh, like testing their cold tolerance, trying to see, mm -hmm. you know, how cold can they get before, you know, they, they stop functioning, you know, basically, um, like looking for, um, what we call like the critical thermal minimum, right? So the lowest temperature at which an animal can still sort of maintain function um, and comparing that across populations. Mm -hmm. uh, so typically it was a, a day and a half, maybe two days of collecting. And then, um, well, typically a day or day and a half of collecting and then one or two days of, um, 
of like physiology experiments. Mm. So in terms of the physiology, do they, will that critical thermal minimum differ seasonally or is it fairly consistent across the year? So it, it is seasonally plastic. Um, right. So, um, as you go into, especially at the northern border of the range, as you go into winter, uh, individuals will become more cold tolerant um, during those winter months. And, um, but we are com- we are comparing individuals at the height of the summer, right? So, and across the entirety of the South, it gets like ridiculously hot during the summer. So we're testing them at the farthest possible point from like that winter acclimation. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so did you see differences across uh, latitude? Very large differences. Okay. I think between the most and least cold tolerant populations, um, the difference was about six degrees Celsius. Um, Wow. Okay. The northernmost populations and most cold tolerant populations could tolerate temperatures that are about six degrees Celsius lower. Wow. So this is like, sort of a random tangent, but I saw a clip the other day on Twitter of Rand Paul sort of bashing various things that the NSF funds. And one of them was he had these like absurd posters next to him that were just like making a farce of the science. But anyways, one of them was looking at like lizards running on treadmills. And I was like, hmm, this sounds (laughs) sort of familiar. Um, And so I guess I'm just curious if you could talk about like sort of a counter argument to that and sort of why the research that you do and the research that evolutionary biologists looking at non-human organisms do, like why that's important and should be funded um, and, you know, like well-received by the public and and the government and all of that. That is a good question. Um, So when people think about the process of science, they like to think of it as like an A to B process, right? Like a straight line from this thing to that thing. It was like, you know, a lot of people, when they think about science, they're like, oh, we want to find the cure for cancer. So we looked for the cure for cancer. Then we found the cure for cancer. And science does not work that way. Mm -hmm. It can't work that way because there's so many unknown unknowns between not knowing something and then knowing something completely. There's like so many things that, that, are in between those two points that you need the freedom to explore as a scientist. All right. So every, every time you have a hypothesis, when you test that hypothesis, what you get at the end is mostly more questions. Right? Yeah. And sometimes you find that it's actually a completely different question that would have been better to ask in the first place. All right. So science as a process, it's a meandering exploratory process and it has to be that way right because you don't know which path is going to lead you to a solution and sometimes the solution may be to a question that nobody's even asked yet right so because of the that exploratory nature of science like you have to give freedom for knowledge to be accumulated right you can't just dictate you know a narrow lane you know, down which individuals can study because you're missing so many things on either side of that lane that may actually be the way to the answer that you're looking for. And it's our job as scientists, collectively, as a community, to stand 
at the edge, at the horizon of our collective ignorance and like stare off into that darkness that is the unknown and then take a step, right? In whatever direction that step is, just to take a step to broaden that horizon. And as that horizon broadens, we begin to find the connections that make sense, right? I mean, we're finding solutions in, in we're finding solutions to problems in places that people never even thought to look, right? But we wouldn't know unless someone else had already explored that space mm-hmm. for a completely different reason. You know, so, you know, when we're, th- when we're thinking about finding solutions to, um, to like human health problems, right? Looking at species that have adapted to extreme environments, right? Sometimes that is like that can provide, it may provide the solution to a lot of really me- medically relevant problems, right? But it's not something that you can dictate beforehand, mm-hmm. right? So for instance, if you're thinking about like hypertension right, or cardiac disease, right, and you want to come up with some solution for treating cardiac disease, it helps to have a functional model of a heart that's working under very extreme conditions that doesn't show the symptoms that our hearts show when they're working under extreme conditions, right? So if you can find a heart that does that in a vertebrate, right, figuring out how evolution by natural selection uh, has shaped, right, that extreme function will help to point you to a potential solution for, you know, for that disease state in humans. But if I were to, you know, if I were to sit down and like dictate to you what you could study, right, in order to get to that solution, right, it would really narrow your options, right? Mm -hmm. Most people would, you know, it's like, oh, maybe some kind of a lab mouse, right? Or, you know, that would be the typical thing. People would not say a draft, but it turns out that drafts, are actually probably one of the most helpful models for understanding hypertension and Mm. the potential therapeutic solution for hypertension because that heart has to pump blood 20, like, you know, what, 12 straight up into the air, you know, uh, into a draft's head, right? That takes a lot of pressure, right? It takes a lot of, there's like a lot of fluid dynamics that are are involved in like that transport, like up a draft's neck, Mm. you know, but... Like who would, you know, who's to say like studying, you know, studying a draft heart is going to be the solution for like understanding cardiac hypertension before the fact. Right, right. And I think that even the coronavirus is a great example of this. I feel like people who were studying coronaviruses before COVID happened, it was sort of a a slightly more niche area of biology. You know, if you're studying coronaviruses in bats, it's not necessarily, you know, making headlines every day. But then now we all of a sudden have this disease at the forefront where all of this knowledge is like essential to be able to create vaccines and combat the virus in the ways that we have. But, you know, on the, if you were looking at it before this uh, pandemic happened, you might not see the value in that research. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing, and, you know, but what if like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, no one, no one could have, no one would have predicted like the extreme of the pandemic that we just went through. Right. And so for someone to say like, Oh, well, why, why would you study coronavirus? That's like a, a bat thing. Like why, if you're worried about human health, like why would you care about that? It doesn't even, 
It's not even yeah. a big thing in humans at all, right? But when it, you know, now that we did have an outbreak, I mean, a big part of that solution, the efficacy, you know, like the efficiency with which we were able to, um, you know, we as a scientific community, I didn't do it, but, you know, the scientific community was able to, you know, come up with a vaccine, um, you know, that, that actually worked. I mean, you had to build off of decades of research that came before. And the vast majority of that research that came before was not designed, like, like the purpose was not to, to invent a vaccine for the coronavirus. Right. It was like disease ecology, zoonotic diseases, you know, trying to understand like the basic biological processes, you know, that drive the perpetuation of one species inside of another species and how it spreads and so on, right? In like something that was a useful and interesting model. But it turns out that, you know, some years later, that that information actually becomes very, very important for something that you could not have predicted beforehand. Mm-hmm. And because that is the way that the world works, you know, like you don't know what the, the next major problem is going to be. And you don't know what the next major innovation is going to be. So to try to like strictly dictate what someone should and should not study beforehand is to limit, you know, the potential avenue to solutions or to innovations in the future. And I think, you know, just from like basic economics, you know, that is not something that you want to do, right? You don't want to yeah. limit yourself, you know, as a collective, you know, as a, as a country, as a species, you don't want to limit yourself, you know, in terms of like the potential for, for growth and innovation and solution. Um, but the only way to maximize that is to allow free reign for the exploration of, of unknowns, right? Down any and every path, like science has to look in all directions because you never know where the solution is going to come from. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is making me think too about sort of the importance of communicating science well and communicating like why we do what we do and why it's important, um, which I know is something that you spend a lot of time doing. You do a variety of different science communication things. Um, So, I mean, some of them are about superheroes, which are not necessarily, (laughs) you know, real, but yeah. So can you tell us about the science communication that you do and why it's so important to you? Because I think Honestly, of like the faculty that I know, I feel like you do more science communication things than like anyone that I know. (laughs) And maybe I just need to to meet more people. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's awesome that you are so invested in communicating the science that you do. Um, Yeah. So can you just talk about what spurs you to do that? Yeah. So for me, science communication is is basically the other half of my job. in my mind. Um, and I do it for, for several reasons. Um, one, as I said, it's the entire reason why I got into science in the first place. Right? Like it wasn't a scientist, you know, like I, you know, until I got to college, I probably couldn't tell you what a biologist actually did for a living. Mm. Um, honestly, probably wasn't until like my PhD that I could really tell you what a biologist did for a living. Um, you know, but I, I had this fascination with nature, right? And there were these individuals that helped to introduce me to that world that got my curiosity spinning. And that ultimately led to, you know, me becoming a biologist. And I didn't have many outlets besides that. You know, I didn't have, you know, much of a science education, you know, before I got to college. Um, I just had this passion 
from like these shows I watched as a child, basically, you know, but it was that passion that like that pushed me through that like got me, you know, over the hump of like finishing my first year with a 0.65 GPA, you know, that, you know, got me into Harvard, that got me through my PhD, you know, that got me to my current position now. Um, so if I can provide that sort of an outlet for anyone under any circumstances, yeah, you know, I want I I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to pay that forward um, as an individual. The other thing is that you know there is still a huge barrier in academia between the work that we do and the and public knowledge of that work. Right? And and I mean, you know, as you said, Brett. So talking about um, who was it that that was making fun of of the science? Paul. Yeah, I mean. It's easy for us as scientists to, to say like, oh, you know, so-and-so is just ignorant or they don't know or so on and so forth. Whose fault is that? Right. right. Who has the information and where does that information go? Right. And who's clearly not doing a good job of spreading that information in a way that people can understand when they don't have a, a PhD in biology. Exactly. Right. So, you know, I think for, for many in the sciences, you know, to be able to publish in like science or nature or cell or current biology or PNAS, right? Like that is like, you know, a pinnacle of success, right? That is a marker of like being very successful at what you do. If you walk down the busiest street you can think of, if you walk into Times Square. My nightmare. <laughs> and you stand, you stood on a podium and had a megaphone and asked someone to raise their hand if they had ever read science or nature or current biology, you would probably not get a single hand. Yeah. Right. And not only that, but like most of these, you know, many of like the journals that we publish in, like there's, there's a paywall, right? So you have to pay for access to research that you've actually already paid for, right? As a taxpayer. Yeah, which is infuriating. Yeah. So, you know, the system itself, right? It, I mean, it just has ready baked into it problems, problems that separate it from, from the general populace. You know, and for me, you know, like coming from, you know, coming from a population and, you know, a geographic region that is, you know, you know, historically and contemporarily, like, you know, very much separate from academia, you know, it's really important for me to like close that gap, you know, both as a scientist and as a responsible citizen. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, those are basically, those are the major driving factors behind, you know, me communicating science. But I think, you know, even on a more simpler, like a, even at a simpler level, you know, we have, as scientists, like we have incredible stories generally, right? If you ask, if you ask pretty much any scientist why they got into science in the first place, what you will never hear is, oh, I just really, as a kid, I was just fascinated by statistical significance and p-values below the 0.05 level were just like the most amazing thing it would make me laugh and laugh and laugh. No. Right. Right. What gets people into science is a story. Right. Now that story may be very different 
based on the person, maybe very different based on the field, but it's a story. Maybe it's a historical story. Maybe it's a story of some critter doing some something weird someplace in the middle of nowhere. Right? But there's like some story that makes you go, wait, what? It does, it does what now? <laughs> wait, how? You said the universe works, how? And it's that question that comes up as a function of that story Right. That curiosity is, is what becomes a scientist. Right. Like that is the spark that start that starts the flame of, you know, of of a lifelong journey of like curiosity and exploration. Yeah. And I think somewhere along the line, many of us in academia, we lose sight of those stories. You know, we get so caught up in the minutia, you know, and, you know, the rigor of the process that like we we lose like the whole reason why we got into this thing in the first place, right? mm-hmm. it's, it's fun, honestly. Like, I'm, I'm gonna be completely real with you. Like with the training that I have, I could use to do something that's a lot easier and spend a lot less time doing it and make mm-hmm. more money doing it than what I do right now, right? The thing that drives me to do what I do is that I get the freedom to explore, right? I get to, the freedom to set satisfy my own curiosity, spend my day asking, well, I wonder what that's about. And exploring that, you know, and, you know, the solutions that come out of that, like knowing that every step along the way, I'm doing my part to help broaden that horizon of our collective knowledge, you know, and I'm helping to add to this collective story that is evolution, right? Like this history of life, this single strand, the single story that has played out in every cell of every single individual of every single species that has ever and will ever exist, all connected by this one story that is evolution. Mm. And so every, I mean, when you're talking about that story, right, that is a story of love and loss and death and betrayal and like all the things that make a story, right? That is the story of life. Right. That is the story of evolution. Right. It's like that that fundamental process that links all living things, every single life across generations. You know, and to me, like that, it's amazing to be able to to play a part in understanding the plot of that story and to be able to share that with those who don't have the the pleasure of doing what I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you look back at everything that you've done, do you have any advice that you would have given to yourself or that you could give to others about like this whole thing called academia? (laughs) I think, I don't know if it's, if it's advice, maybe perspective. Okay. Um, And this is, I think, especially for, for undergrads and graduate students, probably even postdocs, honestly, and I mean, quite frankly, even for folks in my position, I wake up every morning feeling dumb, and I go to sleep every night feeling slightly dumber. <laughs> um, and I think that for the longest time, like that wore on me so much, right? And it like, it plucked all those strings of imposter syndrome. You know, it's like, I'm like, I'm not supposed to be here. Like, you know, I 
have somehow tricked everyone around me into thinking I'm something I'm not, so on and so forth. And then at some point I realized the reason why I constantly felt dumb. And I think it, that is probably the biggest revelation of my career. Mm. Right? And that is as a scientist, I literally wake up every morning and spend my day on the edge of our collective knowledge as a species, staring into the darkness that is the unknown. When you spend all of your time with your back against knowledge, staring out into what you don't know, you feel stupid because everything that you're trying to do, no one has done before. Yeah. Right. And that's natural. You know, that's a if you're if you are in that position and you feel like you have control over the situation, you have done something horribly wrong. <laughs> something has yeah. gone horribly wrong in your training. Maybe you got hit on the head really hard and didn't realize it. You know, but if you can stand on like the very edge of our collective knowledge and spend your entire life staring out into what is not known, trying to figure out, trying to like get one more step, like half a step, just one more inch, right? Like that, it's a hard place to live. It's a very hard place to live psychologically, right? But that feeling is natural once you actually take a step back and understand where you are. Yeah, that's such a good way to think about it. And yeah, I feel like if you, if you feel like you know what you're doing, I feel like you're probably not on the horizon that you think you're at, you're at, you know, you're just answering a question that like someone maybe has already answered before. And so you need to, yeah, think about it differently. That's a great way to think about it. I feel like also as a grad student, there are times when it's sort of overwhelming to feel like there are new techniques and things that like other people know, but I don't know. And so then that also is a time where I just like feel dumb where it's like, well, I should know this, but I don't. <laughs> and that's it's like, we always, that is always the thing that we tell ourselves. It's like, why, why don't I, why don't I know this? Why don't I know R? Like, why yeah. don't I know Python? Or it's like, well, if you lived a life in which nobody ever taught it to you, it wasn't going to be passed on to you genetically. Right? <laughs> it's not, there is no like, you know, coding gene to have <laughs> as far as I know. Um, maybe I just haven't found it as a, you know, as somebody who does genomics. Um, maybe that's a QTL we could do. Um, yeah. But, you know, you're not just going to get it innately, right? You have to learn it at some point. You know, it's just like, this is the point where you're learning it, right? And like, you can't expect to know something that you're learning, right? That's the whole process of learning, you know? But yet somehow we have a tendency in our brains to like invert, it's like, oh, well, I, I don't know this thing I never learned, so I must be stupid for not knowing something that I was never exposed to. Like, that makes zero sense whatsoever. Yeah. Right? yeah. But that's what we get caught up in. I still get caught up in it. Yeah, it's an easy trap to fall into. <clears throat> um, comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, like, which is hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it's, 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 a, it's like, you know, is that you're running to stay in place. Really, yeah. if, you, if, you, if your goal is to be, if your goal is to generate novel knowledge, right? To actually, you know, find something that hasn't been found before. It's like, that is not a fixed point in space and time. 
right? That is a point that is constantly moving. It's constantly being expanded hour by hour, day by day. It's constantly on the move. So for you to find it, you have to constantly be on the move, which means that you're going to be uncomfortable, right? There's always something that's, you know, there's always going to be something to learn. You know, for every paper that you read, there are going to be hundreds more that are published by the time you finish it. Yeah. Oh, God, that's crazy to think about. <laughs> yeah. So what what project that you're working on now are you most excited about? Oh, God, uh, that is like asking somebody to choose their favorite child. <laughs> um, we won't tell the other ones. <laughs> oh, I mean... Oh my God. I got really stressed out just by, just by like having to think about that, which is most exciting. I'm just going to choose one. Yeah. 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 We can rephrase it to what is a project you're excited about? (laughs) Okay. Um, right now, I mean, we're doing a number of things in contemporary evolution that, um, that are really exciting. I think one of the things that, um, that really excites me right now is um, is the elephant work that we're doing. Uh, so we are studying um, the effects of uh, poaching on the evolution of tusk loss in African elephants. Um, in this particular instance, um, we're looking at um, the elephant population in Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique. Um, so um, between the late 70s and early 90s, uh, there are um, there's a Mozambican civil war. It lasted for about 15 years. Um, and during this time, there was um, large-scale poaching for the ivory trade. And the ivory trade is, what's, is what fueled arms purchasing on both sides of that civil conflict. Um, and during this time, the population in Gorongosa um, was reduced to about a tenth of its size. And among African elephants, um, most, the vast majority of individuals have tusks. Um, All males have tusks Mm -hmm. and the vast majority of females have tusks, but there is a small proportion of females specifically that are born without their tusks and never grow their tusks. They're completely tuskless. Um, And typically under most circumstances that floats around you know, at between like two and 5%, you know, so pretty low frequency in most populations. After the Mozambican civil war, half of the surviving females were tuskless. Um, so we saw this rapid increase in the frequency of tusklessness during this time. And we've been really interested in, you know, was this actually due to selection, you know, against tusks like during this period of really heavy poaching? <laughs> Um, or was it simply like a random chance event due to the extreme bottleneck event, the fact that so many individuals were killed off, um, that you just got this random fluctuation, you know, in, in phenotypic representation in the population because of, um, because of drift, essentially. Um, so we've been um, studying that process and um, we've been searching for the genes that underpin this tusklessness and looking for signatures of selection uh, in the genome, um, you know, associated with like contemporary poaching. Cool. Yeah. Exciting. Okay, I have a couple more questions for you. One is sort of silly. So 
Okay, in like, you know, DC and Marvel and whatnot, there are a lot of superheroes based off of animals, right? There's like Ant-Man, Batman, Spider-Man, whatever, Black Panther, etc. What animal do you think should have a superhero modeled after it that doesn't already exist? Oh, uh, what animal? The tardigrade. Mm, yes. Oh, tell me more. What would that look like? Um, like, I mean, essentially it, it would basically be a person who is com- like more or less completely indestructible. It <laughs> 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 like, you know, is able to like, you know, withstand pretty much anything that would kill any normal person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, maybe I should, you know, I should, I should pitch that like a high school kid gets bitten by a radioactive tardigrade and becomes <laughs> water bear man. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Be so cute. <laughs> I don't know that it would instill fear in the hearts of its adversaries, but it would like it would like desiccate and like go into you know into like an ina- a biologically inactive state for extreme periods of time. <laughs> yeah, it would be like you're trying to blow me up. Well, I'll just outlive you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see y'all in uh, 250 years. <laughs> Not y'all. But uh, maybe your grandkids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe not the most exciting movie, but it would be a good superhero. It would live for a long time. <laughs> okay, awesome. And then the last question that I just wanted to ask is, um, how can people stay in touch with you if they want to contact you, if they want to follow your various forms of science communication that you do, all the different ways to stay in yeah, touch? So, um, uh, you can uh, find me at campbellstaten.com. Uh, which is my lab's website. Um, you can find me on Twitter at S. Campbell Staten. Uh, you can find the Biology of Superheroes podcast wherever you get your audio content, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever. Um, and you can follow the uh, Biology of Superheroes podcast on Twitter at SuperBioPodcast. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Roots to STEM podcast. Between when we recorded this interview and now when the podcast is airing, the paper that Shane talks about about the evolution of tusklessness in African elephants has been published in Science. I'll include a link to it in the show notes, but if you hit a paywall, contact me and I'll get you a PDF. Get in touch with us on our website, rootstostempodcast.com, or via email, rootstostempodcast at gmail.com, and on Twitter at rootstostempod, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash rootstostempod. I'd love to hear from you about what you're liking about the podcast, improvements we could make, who you'd like to see on the podcast, or anything else. Please get in touch. We'll be back soon with another episode.